We are continuing our uh, series in Matthew called The Good News Kingdom. And this morning, we come to the final scene of Matthew's birth narrative of Jesus, in which he is going to continue to show us both how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures and how Jesus is providentially and supernaturally delivered from evil. There is evil all around us. There is evil all around us, some that we can see and some that we can't see. And it'd be interesting just for fun to walk around and talk to each one of you and give me the five ways that you see evil in this world. Whether that be political structures or neighbors or wives or who knows what you would answer to that. But we know that there is lots of evil in the world. But one thing I think we don't understand is how pervasive evil really is. And I think it comes not just to seeing and observing the evil that is out there, but I think it's the same when it comes to us. Or I would ask you five ways in which you see sin and the curse of sin and evil taking root in your life. We could probably list those pretty quickly. But I also say this is that all of us here don't know the depths of the evil that are actually inside of our own hearts. There's one uh, theologian who says this, it is the kindness of God that he does not reveal to us all of our evil at once. Because there is evil everywhere, all around us. It's almost as if it is omnipresence. And this fourth dream scene, as we're going to see in just a minute, shows further that God is providentially leading his people out of that evil into a place of righteousness, peace, and joy, which is the good news kingdom. I don't know if you've caught all of this, but one thing I want to do is show you these particular dream narratives that in a sense the entire birth narrative is carried along by God revealing himself through dreams because we've been studying the birth of Jesus as we've been walking through it piece by piece sometimes you miss the bigger picture and the bigger picture is that there are five times God speaks to people in dreams in Matthew chapter 1 the first dream Joseph is told Mary is pregnant and is virgin if you remember that particular scenario in chapter 2 The Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, but to find a different way around the back to their place. Dream number three and four that, or sorry, that Nate looked at last week in chapter two, verse 13, dream three, Joseph is warned to escape Bethlehem and go to Egypt because Herod is going to kill all the children, all the male children. Then this morning, dream four, Joseph, we're going to see, is told to return to Israel And in a sense, on his way to Israel, he is warned in a fifth dream not to go back to Bethlehem, but to go to Galilee. Let's read these particular uh, verses together. Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23, to look at these last two scenarios of the vision of the dreams that God gives. Matthew 2, 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph, he got up, 
took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, Judea is the region in which Bethlehem is a city, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, he was afraid to go there. So having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went up and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This morning, I'm going to look at this passage and encourage us that God is leading us out of evil. And yet, sometimes we have to go to Egypt, and sometimes we have to go to Nazareth. But in all of it, God is for you and leading you to this new creation, this new world. So, Father, help us as we look at the final events of Jesus' birth and see that how not only you are leading him, but you are leading him for the sake of us. And now that he is resurrected and ascended and is sitting at your right hands, you are doing the very same for us. You are leading us in all the different ways, in all the different places, in all the different sufferings, in all the different scenarios. You are with us, leading us. So, Father, help us to be encouraged in your goodness, in your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, I want to look at these two last dreams that were given to Joseph to show how God is providentially preserving Jesus, his son, despite all the evil powers that are intent on destroying him. So let's look first at this first vision. He is told to return to Israel because Herod is now dead. It's interesting in this passage, Herod is not the one referred to. It says the ones who are seeking to kill him, but we're implying that this is Herod. And so though Herod is not mentioned, he is the one that is probably being referred to. And he died, we know, according to historical records, that Herod died in 4 B.C. So probably very soon after he had made that edict to destroy all the children, he ended up dying himself. And in a sense, this whole region, the whole nation breathed a sigh of relief. And so probably more refugees other than just Jesus had returned from Egypt back up to land. There was probably lots of other families who escaped Bethlehem. Does that make sense? It wasn't just Jesus. But lots of other families were probably returning just as Jesus was returning. And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus probably lived as refugees in Egypt for at least over a year. Now, the reason that Herod is probably not mentioned by name specifically is due to the fact that Matthew is making and taking another opportunity to connect the mission of Jesus to the mission of Moses. As you see on the screen here, I have a, a slide for you that shows this direct correlation that is even stronger when you look at the Greek, and I'm not going to do that for you, but in Exodus chapter 4, when we talk about the story of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, before he gets back to Egypt, he's in Midian for 40 years, and, in, and while he's there, God, Yahweh, speaks to him and says, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So that gives Moses some confidence to go back. In Matthew chapter 2, 
Jesus now speaking to Joseph that says this, Go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Now, if you're like me, this seems, all the authors telling me, this is a direct connection to Moses. I'm like, really? This is weird. God told Moses to go to Egypt, and God is now telling Joseph to what? Leave Egypt, right? Like, they're going to the wrong places. Like, they're switching. Like, how is that even a connection? But I think what Matthew is doing is making a connection not with the geography, but with the actual purpose. Moses is told to go back to Egypt to rescue God's people. And Jesus is going back to Israel to rescue his people. Matthew records a direct relationship here between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus, and that both, even though they're going to different places, have been sent to rescue God's people. Moses definitely rescued God's people from Pharaoh through a powerful display of God's power at the Red Sea. And if you know that story, you're familiar when they are at, the, at this body of water, which we think is the Red Sea, and they look behind them and they see this massive army, the Egyptians chasing after them, and God tells Moses to lift his staff, and all of a sudden the waters begin to part, and God's people begin to walk through, and they get to the other side, and as the army's chasing them, God lets the waters cave in. And in that demonstration of power, Moses brings deliverance, and he brings victory to God's people. But as we see through the rest of the story of Israel, Moses had won the war, but he had not won the battle. Well, I'm going to take that the other way around. He had won the battle, but he had not won the war. What I mean by that, were there other nations who came in and impressed God's people after Egypt? Yes. Did Moses do something magnificent and amazing for God's people? Yes. Was it, the, in a sense, the quintessential story of the Old Testament that describes the, what Jesus is going to do? Absolutely. But what Moses doesn't do is bring final and complete victory. Because really, final and complete victory is not being and defeating a human ruler. God's people are not ultimately enslaved by a Democratic or Republican president. God's people are not enslaved by a bad and horrible boss. The true and final enemy of God's people is and always will be the evil one, the devil himself, and this is the war that needed to be won that Moses could not win. And in this particular story, this is the ultimate enemy that is seeking to destroy this child. I don't know how much Satan knew and how much Satan knows now. Does that make sense? I don't think he's like God and knows everything. But I think he knew that this was a direct threat upon his kingdom. And he did everything he could, just as he did with Moses, and he did throughout the Old Testament, trying to destroy the next seed who might come to bring the end to his kingdom. He knew he was promised that one day someone was going to step on his head and crush him. And so he is doing everything he can to destroy that seed. And whether or not he knew this was the Messiah... I'm not sure, but what I do know is that he was doing his best to bring evil upon this righteous branch. 
And this birth narrative gives hope that a new and better Moses has come into our time, into our space, a new and better deliverer who will not only win the battles, but will win the war by crushing this Satan. And through five dreams, and through an obedient Joseph, God providentially preserves this Messiah child. The evil is held back so that no harm can come to this baby, to this child. And I've been using this word providence, providentially on purpose, because sometimes I think we miss the point. Sometimes we use the phrase that says something like this, well, that was providential. Ever used that phrase before? And oftentimes I think we use it in the sense that it's a mere coincidence. That providence is just a happenstance, that it's just a circumstance. But when we speak about providence in biblical categories, obviously we are not talking about mere coincidence. We're not talking about random chances. What is providence? Providence and sovereignty are closely related to each other, but I want to make this clear distinction for us. Sovereignty is a doctrine that states it is God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. So when we talk about God being a sovereign God, what we're saying is two things, that he has the right, the authority, and he has the power and the strength to do whatever he wants to do. That is God's sovereignty. And we believe the scriptures teach in an all-sovereign God that he has all power and all authority to do what he has decided to do. We have passages in Isaiah that say this, the Lord of the heavens of armies has spoken, and who can change his plans? When his hand is raised, who can stop him? Both rhetorical questions that no one can change God's plans and no one can stop him. That his plans and his will will be accomplished because he has all authority and all power to do it. Or as Job will declare at the end of his suffering, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Okay, you hear the word thwarted every three years when you read Job 42 too. It's a very weird word to say. But the idea is nothing can be altered. No one can bring a, a, a detour. No one can bring a plan B. God can do all things. His will will be accomplished. And so sovereignty has to do with God's will, has to do with his um, rights and power. Now, providence, biblically speaking, again, is not mere coincidence, but what providence is, it is the outworking. Providence is the loving outworking of God's sovereignty, whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about those purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. It's the gracious and wise outworking of His sovereignty. Sovereignty has to do with his authority and power, and providence has to do with how he works that sovereignty out. For example, in his providence, 
He does things graciously. He does things wisely. He doesn't do things happenstance or by chance or just randomly. He is purposely in wisdom, in love, in grace, doing everything to bring everything to the purposes of a new world where he can dwell with his people. So sovereignty is this big category of will and authority and power. And providence is how he actually brings about those circumstances to bring about the world that he has wanted from the beginning. So in this story, God has the rights and the power to control the situation. And how does he in his rights and his power bring about the situation? Through dreams. God's providence in this passage is speaking through dreams. Has God ever spoken to you in a dream? I wonder if he has and we just don't know it. Do you know that God is regularly speaking in dreams today? You may know this. But there is a, if you want more information on this, I can get it for you. But there is a vast, uh, uh, what I just call this, like conversion of Islam people to the Christian faith. And one of the primary ways in which Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus, have you heard this, is through what? They see a man in a white robe. This is a consistent thing that they see over and over and over again. That's God's providence. It's not circumstance. It's not coincidence. God is still speaking to his people. He is still in this situation giving Joseph and the Magi dreams and warning them and informing them what they should be doing, where they should be going. And the good news of the kingdom of God is that this God is not providentially just acting on behalf of Jesus. But because he providentially acted on behalf of Jesus, he is now providentially acting on your behalf. He Just as he was warning Joseph and the Magi and protecting the child from evil, he is providentially leading your life away from evil. God is providentially preserving you from the devil. The birth narrative foretells the Lord's Prayer that taught us to pray this. The sixth and final request is what? Deliver us from who? The evil one. Matthew 1 and 2 is an an, an example of what this prayer looks like. God would not allow the evil one to gain control over this child and to kill him. And so Jesus knew that. He understood that. And he knew that this was a real possibility in our lives. And so he calls us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. But how does God do this? How does God providentially deliver us from the evil one? Well, how do you do it in Jesus' life? He sent him to Egypt. God is not only at work in our lives through these visions, through these places of comfort like here, but God is at work providentially preserving us from the evil one in the uncomfortable places of Egypt. Can you imagine it would be like in that day with a brand new child, to leave your country and to go to a place that in a sense was your enemy. Okay, this would be like, 
you know, 500 years ago, living in New York City and having to walk to Boston. You know anything about New York and Boston? We hate each other. And you have to live in a completely different world, in a completely different culture, not having, knowing where your food was, not having a job. And in order for God to providentially preserve this child, he had to send him to Egypt. Now, are you in Egypt? Are you in a place of uncomfort, discomfort? Are you in a place where you sent God has sent you in His wise and loving providence? He doesn't know what He's doing? Do you think that God has left you? See, to protect us, God sends us to uncomfortable places. Egypt can be, can be painful. And it is these spaces in our lives where we don't want to be. It's the situations that we don't want to face. And Egypt can be filled with suffering. And yet God is doing all of it for what reason? To protect you from the evil one. Did it ever dawn on you that if you lived in a complete life of comfort and ease, you might never rely on God? And it might send you to be delivered or be overtaken by the evil one. And he sends you to Egypt so that you are forced to look to him. And in that forceful looking to him, you then are drawn to need him. So it's in Egypt, the discomfort, the uncomfortable spaces in your life where God is supernaturally, providentially in his wisdom and his love preserving you. But God is not only at work in the foreign, uncomfortable places of Egypt in our lives, He's also at work in the obscure, seemingly useless places of our life. How do we know that? Well, let's look at the final dream, this final vision in... Oh, I just... That's right. I'm going to go back right here. Oh, yeah, I'm going to leave that up there. We're going to go back to this final vision. In this final vision, God has informed Joseph to go back to Israel. And on his way back, he learns about a man named Archelaus. is ruling in Judea. Judea is the region of which Bethlehem is a part. Joseph, as most commentators, I think he's right, probably wanted to go back to Bethlehem. If he knew that his son was this Messiah, who is the son of David, where would be the most likely place you'd want to raise this son? In Bethlehem. And so he's probably on his way back to Bethlehem, but he received word that there was a new man in charge named Archelaus. After Herod's death, you don't need to really know this, but his, uh, his kingdom was split into three parts into his three sons. And his most powerful son, Archelaus, became ruler of Judea, Samaria. That's like, a, if you're familiar with Israel, I should have a map for you, but Judea is like the southern part of Israel, Samaria is the middle, and um, Galilee is the northern part. Okay, it's like the three regions, primary regions of Israel. And Archelaus was ruler of Judea and Samaria. And he, much like his father, was very much disliked because of his cruelty and he was so much hated, in fact, that the Jews sent a delegation of, of Jews to Rome complaining to Caesar that Archelaus 
had killed 3,000 Jews right before uh, uh, the temple ceremony of um, Passover. And so in 86, 6 AD, maybe two years, he was in power. By the time all this happened, Rome did depose him, and he was taken out of control. But again, we know that God is providentially in all circumstances ensuring the safety of his son by revealing to Joseph to not go to Bethlehem, but to settle in Galilee. So the first thing we see in this final vision is that God protects him from another evil ruler. But the second thing we see in this final vision, this final dream, is a warning that is a strange fulfillment of prophecy. Look in verse 23. What does it say? And he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. You know what is never mentioned in the entire Bible? That Jesus will be called a Nazarene. Like, this seems kind of strange, right? Like, Matthew is saying, this has taken place to fulfill something. And I have the other four um, passages in Matthew 1 and 2 where Matthew uses what we're going to call this fulfillment formula. The fulfillment formula is, this took place to fulfill this. And as you can see in Matthew chapter 1, the virgin birth was fulfilled to take place what will happen in Isaiah chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 2, what was said that God would bring his son out of Egypt is a fulfillment of Hosea. And as Nate talked about last week in Matthew 2, 17 and 18, the prophet Jeremiah about uh, Rachel weeping for her children, fulfilling. And so I can take you to like Isaiah 7, I can take you to Hosea, I can take you to Jeremiah, where all of these passages come from. You know what I can't do? Is take you to any place in the Bible where it says Jesus will be a Nazarene. So what is Matthew doing? I think we have a couple hints. And... Thank God for the letter S. Okay? What do we mean by that? If you notice, it says, through the prophet, through the prophet, through the prophet, through the prophets. What does that mean? I think what Matthew is hinting at here is that when you look at the collective prophetic material about who this Messiah would be, would he be this mighty, regal, royal figure that everyone would look to and say, you are my king? Or, do the collection of prophetic material that we have in the Old Testament rather depict more of what Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, that he has no beauty or form that we would even desire to be with him? So what is Matthew doing? I think he's saying that there is a collection of material from the prophetic material of the Old Testament. The prophets are telling us that this son is not going to be royal and regal. In fact, he's going to be a Nazarene. What does that mean? Nazareth, a Nazarene, was a person from a small backward town who could be looked, to be expected looked at today as someone as like a hick from the sticks, if I just offended you, or a redneck, or someone who went from a very tiny little town. Which is why Nathaniel can say in John, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus was despised and rejected like all the prophets of old. And so Jesus being a Nazarene, which by the way, Nazareth was only 25 to 30 acres and only had about 480 to 500 people living in it. 
Okay, this was a very tiny community. This is interesting. This Messiah, the one the entire Old Testament is waiting for, the son who has been sent by the father to Egypt as a refugee, is now led back to a homeland, and he's back where? I know you know the end of the story, but don't go there yet. Just go in the narrative where we're at. This miraculous kid has been born, and he's providentially rescued and taken out of Egypt. And every story that we would tell would say when he came out of Egypt would go where? To Washington, D.C. Or a place of prominence. And yet that's not how God works. He takes him to a place of even greater obscurity than Bethlehem. Everyone knew Bethlehem. And everyone knew something great could come out of Bethlehem, but nobody knew about Nazareth, and everyone knew nothing good could come out of Nazareth. In a sense, God sent Jesus to a place of obscurity. Nazareth was a place where nothing was going on. Nothing substantial ever took place. And why do you do that? To protect him once again. Do some of you feel like maybe you're in Nazareth? Your life has no meaning right now? Like 2020, you couldn't do anything? So you're so excited in 2021, you can actually accomplish something? But you know what God did in Nazareth for Jesus? He protected him. And you know what he did for you in your Nazareth? He's protecting you. See, as John Piper says, and I'm going to mess this quote up a little bit, but he says something like this, that we're aware of maybe three or four things God is doing, but we are unaware of the 10,000 things God is doing in our lives. We think our lives have no meaning, that there's nothing going on, there's no purpose, there's nothing significant happening in my life. And yet, did you ever stop thinking if something major is going on? God gave you all the promotion you wanted. He gave you all the money you've ever wanted. He gave you the house that you wanted. He gave you the family you wanted. If everything in your life all of a sudden had meaning and significance, do you ever stop to think that that might be a way that the evil one would overtake you? And so he leaves you in Nazareth to protect you from the evil one. So is 2020 for you a year in Egypt or a year in Nazareth? What about 2021? What if God takes you to Egypt this year? What if he leaves you in Nazareth this year? No church, understand church, that God in his wise and loving providence is working all things to protect you from the evil one in his ways. And we know this, not because Jesus only experienced it, but Jesus is actually the proof that God guarantees it. That if God was willing to send Jesus to Egypt and Nazareth, he'd be willing to send you to Egypt and Nazareth is one thing. But to know that he did that in Jesus for you, clearly, clearly demonstrates that he is doing it for your good too. So church, God is protecting you. He is in His sovereignty. He is providentially 
delivering you from the evil one. So keep your faith, keep your eyes on him, whether you're in Egypt or you're in Nazareth. God is working. He's protecting you. So Father, thank you for these promises that you are in our Egypt, in our Nazareth, always doing 10,000 more things than we could ever do. You are constantly protecting us. And so, help us just to take a moment and be thankful for that. What about you, church? Is it easy for you to thank God for the good things and the hard things in your life? But you ever thank Him for the things you don't even know that are good and bad that He's keeping you from and giving you to? And then if He gave us Jesus, we know that in the Egypts and the Nazareths, he is providentially, lovingly, and wisely leading us. So Jesus, continue to preserve our faith.